bulletin, and it tells me that Psalm 12, you double-check that, make sure that's right. Last time I got that wrong. <laughs> so, Psalm 12 is our scripture reading today, found on page 452 of your pew Bible. Let's pray. Almighty and merciful God, Lord, we thank you. God, that often your kindness comes in suffering. But all your ways are mercy and love. God, reveal to us today the condition of our hearts and the desire of your will, Lord, to change us and to move us and to make us new. Help us, Lord, to see in your word what you have for us today. And let the meditation of our hearts and the words of our mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh God. In your name we pray. Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to the uh, Sheminith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us, who is master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver and refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Word of God for the people of God. And uh, I will uh, give you the same permission I gave the Mount Carmel folks, having just arrived last evening from West Africa, uh, that if I happen to nod off, you can throw something at me. Uh, if I happen to say something heretical, because I have no idea uh, what I'm saying, then you can burn me at the stake uh, later. But it is a joy to uh, be with you as always. I wouldn't turn down the opportunity uh, at all to be with you uh, today. And if I could plug, uh, pray for our Nigerian brothers and sisters. We uh, told them that uh, we want to get their story out when and where we can here you're not going to catch much of it on the news, uh, but they are suffering desperately there. Uh, the, the middle belt of Nigeria is the, about the last Christian stronghold in uh, Nigeria. And we want to pray that the Lord would strengthen the churches. Um, they're losing more and more churches and pastors through to, uh, due to attacks and uh, Fulani militant Muslims. So uh, insofar as you might... Uh, Think of them, do pray for them, and I would certainly be glad to point you in a couple of directions to, to make sure you get some news from there from time to time. Uh, well, this morning, uh, you will have to endure something like some devotional thoughts I've had over Psalm 12 over the last several months. Uh, it has uh, stuck with me and uh, thought, well, maybe this is a good time to, uh, to share this with uh, churches as I have opportunity. We can't be sure exactly what provoked this psalm. Uh, it certainly fits any number of episodes when Saul persecuted David and was chasing David down. Uh, Saul, as you recall, was Israel's first king. He was a, a slick-talking rascal uh, who duped folks into hunting down David uh, in the name of righteousness. Uh, 
Saul, he swindled most Israelites, but they fawned all over him as their beloved king. But Saul could never get over on David. No matter how hard he tried or uh, how much he convinced or how convincing he was to others, uh, only relatively few now we find with the psalm remained on David's and therefore on Yahweh's side. We find the context of David's prayer. We're going to work through the text and then see if we can uh, consider some things to talk, talk about over coffee and, and lunch. The context of David's prayer is really verses 1 and 2 and then verse 8, something of a bookend to the psalm. David found himself, relatively speaking, alone among Israelites. There is no godly man. There is no faithful Israelite to be found, he said. Those uh, terms are covenant-specific terms. Uh, they, they, they are used, the godly man and the faithful one. Th- those are terms used to describe someone who loved and obeyed God's law. But now, David says, by and large, no one was sticking to God's word in Israel. Dave, David's not in enemy territory here. He's not in Gentile territory. He's surrounded by what should be the hometown fans. He's on, he's on the home field. And yet the whole stadium is now cheering against him. We might remember, uh, as we read through 1 Samuel, uh, Doeg the Edomite or the Ziphites who, who took any opportunity to rat out David to Saul. We know where he is and where you can find him. David said, those scallywags, they lie to one another. Verse 2, through flattery, the Hebrew, smooth lips. And a double heart, they speak. They're slick talkers with slippery words through insinuation and doublespeak and redirection. You couldn't quite pin them down as to what they meant. They made you think they were one thing for David, when in reality they were against him. That's the way of Saul. They used powerful sounding, emotionally charged words that rallied crowds, but but they were like cotton candy, right? It's gone as soon as you taste it. Calvin said, you cannot gather anything certain with respect to their intentions. In sum, David looks around and what should be faithful Israelites are now a people who are fluent in hypocrisy, the native language of Satan himself, and they congratulated themselves on it. David saw these men in verse 8 strutting around, prowling around, walking all around him. He heard them running their mouths and thumping their chests about being on the quote-unquote right side of history because they had to find where that line was drawn. And David prayed one of the most powerful prayers in all of the Bible, help. It's the Hebrew word yashar from which we get Yeshua, Joshua, and eventually Jesus, you see. That's the context of his prayer. What did he pray? What's the content of his prayer we find in Verses 3 and 4, what what did he want God to do? He prayed that God would cut their lips off and cut their tongues out. Of course, that's hyperbolic. It's metaphorical for the culmination of God's judgment against them. It It was a cry for decisive and violent judgment against them. Now, parents, you know full well what David means here, don't we? When we threaten to wipe that smile off your kid's face. I said that just a few weeks ago to one of ours. Or, or I'm going to smack those eyes into the back of your head. That's what David's prayed. 
David prayed that God would thoroughly judge them so that they no longer would use words to oppress, to exploit, or to devastate godly, faithful Israelites. They would no longer persuade and entice God's people into satanic hypocrisy. These these arrogant, pompous folks thought that they could rule the world with their words. You You see, they don't need swords. With our tongue, we will prevail. With our words, we will prevail. Our lips are our own, they say in verse 4. Which meant that they are sovereign over their words. They're sovereign over definitions. They're sovereign over vocabulary. We determine the definitions, they say. We decide what words mean. We declare what words are good for us and which ones are not. We define truth itself. And therefore, of course, they ask rhetorically, in verse 4, who is Lord over us? No one, they think. Especially not Yahweh in his words. Uh, this is an old preacher illustration that I just heard a few weeks ago again. I'm sure you've heard it. Three umpires discussing together. And one umpire says, I, I call the pitches what they are. Second umpire says, well, I, I call the pitches like I see them. And the third umpire says, oh, fellas, let's not shortchange ourselves. The pitches are nothing until we call them. That's what David's enemies are like. Language meant lordship. And if they controlled the language and the definitions, then they were their own masters. Masters over those enchanted with their words. They controlled truth. Peter Craigie comments, the the psalmist has painted a picture of speech that has been raped. And so David, representative of his little small band of followers, asked God to save them by by putting an end to these tongue-wagging hypocrites. Well, we find God's response in verse 5. God's people, at that time, David and his little, little flock, had suffered more than some mean words and accusations, we find that all of the flattery and the doublespeak and the Saulites, the language controlling, had actually devastated David and left his people destitute. It's verse 5. This wasn't a mere Twitter fight. These rascally Saulites, if that's who they were, and they used barbs, they used their bloviating, they used their boasting to turn many against Israel's king, rightful king, David. They ran him out of town and convinced many that David was the enemy and not to be given any quarter. Their words did damage, physical damage, economic damage, certainly psychological damage. But God heard their groaning. Which, that word in Hebrew elsewhere when it's used in the Old Testament is what death row inmates do when they want to be Free. It's what soldiers, wounded soldiers beg for. The relief they beg for is this word for the groaning of the needy. The, the Greek version of the Old Testament uses the same word here that's used in Acts 7.34 where God heard the groaning of the Israelite slaves. It's the same word Paul would use in Romans 8 where the Spirit translates prayerful groanings of Christians. Spurgeon said, a tear makes not a great noise, yet it has a voice. 
So God, verse 5, would arise. The implication was that God had been seated, or perhaps he had been lying down, but, but he could no longer stand to hear his people groan any longer. And he would provide, he says, I will provide the salvation that you've been crying out for. So David prayed for help in verse 1, and God says, I will now arise and help. Verse 5. And we have David's confidence in God's response in verses 6 and 7. Um, you know that feeling, uh, maybe back as a child, uh, in your childhood days, that you know that feeling when you saw dad get out of his chair? Like we're running our mouths like big shots and dad's letting it go on for a little while. But then you say something and dad, dad starts to get up. We, then what do we do? We start running. This is what the Lord is doing. Yahweh is now getting up. He's not going to tolerate the groans any longer. But we see God, as it were, get out of his chair. And where does he go? We don't see God move toward the enemies. He gets out of his chair so to speak. And his first move is toward his people. And what does he give them? He has prayed, David has prayed for help. God says, I will now rise and give help. And how I'm going to give you help? Uh, is he going to give them sharper swords, bigger tanks than the enemies? No, God gives, gives his people his words. He armed his people with his words. He keeps his people with his Words. He preserves his people with his words. He saves them by his word. And that was all that David needed. God's words, unlike the words of his opponents, Yahweh's words are pure, David says. Uh, in fact, so pure like silver. Like they've been in silver seven times refined in the forge. And we know that seven is the Bible's symbolic number of completion. We might say to the nth degree. God's words were true words. Their words, nothing but trash. God's words, treasure. God's words are not from a single heart, uh, not from a double heart, but from a single heart. David knew that God's character was not separate from his words. That's not, you and I can separate our words from our character. You know that, right? We can say something that's not really true of us. Not so with God. Whatever God says is what God is. And David knew that. God cannot say other than he is. God promised salvation because he is a savior. He promised deliverance because he is a deliverer. He promised help because God is a helper. And therefore David knew, verse 7, that God would protect him and them. He would keep his followers from the wicked generation of Israelites who have afflicted them. Calvin described them as a, a heap of chaff upon the barn floor of the Lord while only a few grains of corn lie hidden underneath. Whatever form God's ultimate salvation would take, he and his followers were sustained and protected by God's pure, undiluted, perfect words. Is there, is there a more fitting mantra to describe our age? With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who will be Lord over us? We own words. We own language. And therefore, we will define gender. We will define love. We will define marriage. We will define sin and justice. 
We will define what a child is or is not. We will define righteousness, and we will define salvation. We will define, in the end, truth. Your truth, my truth. Who will rule over us? Certainly not God. In his words, we are sovereign. Dear brothers and sisters, self-righteousness by any other name is still self-righteousness. Think of this, long before there is ever a change in law, there is a change in language. Long before there is ever a change in law, there is a change in language. A change in words, a change in definitions. Long before there's violence, there's a change in vocabulary. Before we ever change our behavior, we will first change our terms. Now, of course, this isn't actually new at all, is it? It's been Satan's strategy from the beginning. Did did Satan torture Eve until she gave in? Of course not. He didn't lay a finger on her. He simply got her doubting God's words. God really said, Genesis 3.1, he got her wondering if there was truth outside of God's truth. As if to say, Eve, God's lying to you. God just hasn't kept up with the times. God is threatened by your pursuit of truth. And now many Christians and churches and whole denominations have assumed the redefinition of terms, redefinition of categories that God nowhere prescribes, much less endorses. And many of us have simply changed our language to domesticate ideas and words and language and terms and definitions that God has always called sin. For example, and I want to be sensitive, but I want to be firm. There is no biblical category, for example, of transgender. No one is transgender. There there are only guys trying to look like and behave like gals or gals trying to look like and behave like guys. What the world now has created a term is nothing more than what God calls homosexuality. It's the same. It's exchanging natural for the unnatural. God has always said it's that. It's simply sin by another name. So it doesn't matter, really, how many initials the world strings together or how many terms they invent, we don't have to be confused in the least. You see, when we assume the category, Satan is already first in goal. For another example, what about love? Since the beginning, Satan has tried to separate our understanding of love from God and his character, that there is something of love outside of God. Recently, our family had a a playful I hope it was playful, but important conversation about love. Jokingly, uh, our youngest daughter, uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, had, had said, at least I hope it was tongue-in-cheek, said, well, I, I love in my own way. We pass a church uh, when we come up this way with a, a wooden cutout of what presumably is Luther holding a rainbow sign with love is love on it. Now, aside from the fact that Luther would probably burn the building down and drink a beer over its ashes, love is not a word we own. We don't own that word. That's that's God's word. 
He, he owns that word. Because it flows from his character. And we don't have the liberty to redefine a word that God owns. We don't have the liberty to love in our own way any more than we can raise the sun in our own way. We either love God's way or we really don't love at all. That's what John writes in 1 John 4. Not because God is an egomaniac, but because God knows that any counterfeit, distorted love destroys us. We might find ourselves looking around and wondering where, like David, where all the faithful and the godly folks have gone. So what do we do? Do we sit around complaining about all them sinners out there? Do we redouble our efforts for political candidates? Do we now invest in academia? How do we hold the line in this war of words? Well, first and foremost is we've got to stay near the king. David was God's man hearing God's words. By this time, God had stopped talking to Saul. In fact, God had so stopped talking to Saul, do you remember this? He had to go drum up through a witch doctor, the ghost of Samuel. God was no longer talking to Saul. God was talking to David, the king. So to hear from God meant you had to stay with the king. But like all Psalms, Psalm 12 is a, anticipates Jesus who endured what David experienced to its ultimate degree. Oh, did, did Jesus not suffer Slick talkers who rallied the masses against him? Can we not hear the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus in a contest of words? Well, Moses says this, Jesus, what do you say? We, we say this, Jesus, but you say that with our words we will prevail. Can we not hear the chief priests and the scribes stirring up the crowds with words? Jesus said he could destroy our temple. They didn't need to torture anyone. They just had to redefine the terms. Can we not hear them using Christ's own words against him to manipulate Pilate into executing him? Jesus said he's king of the Jews and therefore not Caesar, Pilate. And after Jesus equated his flesh with heavenly manna to be eaten. In John 6, the Jews began to, as John's account in John 6, 52, the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? And so Jesus doubled down. He said, if you don't understand, by the way, you're going to have to drink my blood if you want to be saved. John says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That sounds like Psalm 12, 1, doesn't it? Where are the godly and faithful? They couldn't take the words. Jesus turned to his little band of followers, the twelve, and asked if they planned to bail on him too. Remember Peter's answer? Lord, where will we go? You have words of eternal life. What are the, there are no other words we can get that are pure words. Grade A silver words. Within a few hours of his death, we hear Jesus praying for his people. That includes us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Whatever it is that we are suffering and will continue to suffer, Jesus has been through the worst of it. 
Christ, the godly and faithful man, endured the devastation of the covenant people, destroying him through their words. And unless and until he dies for us, we are the offenders, not the victims. Spurgeon says, Jesus feels with his people and their smarts are mighty orators with him. Stay with Christ, beloved. He's been through this before. How do we do that? How do we stay near the king? The king's hearing the words of God. How do we stay near the king? We stay near the king by staying near God's words. Staying with Christ is not a psychological exercise. We don't imagine our way to Christ. We're not even near Christ because we meet in a t- uh, together in a building we call a church. We are near Christ to the degree that we are saturated in God's words, the, the indestructible words of God. Our family's gotten into, have you seen this show, Forged in Fire? Where contestants make uh, swords and knives out of, out of uh, raw material and things. Boy, and they would they'd put stuff in the forge, take it out, put it in and take it out, trying to get it as hard as possible and such. And then they would test these blades and knives by just abusing them. Uh, And the the only way to test how strong the blades were was just to beat them violently against things that are harder than them, than than the blade. That's God's word refined seven times in the furnace. God's word will hold up. Bang it against anything, send anything against it, it will stay sharp and it will stay pure. It won't buckle. Psalm 119, verses 89, 93. Forever, O Yahweh, your words are settled in heaven. I will never forget your precepts, for by them your servant is revived. That mean, that mean, what this means is that what God says is true about a thing has always been true and will always be true about a thing. We never have to wonder or be confused. And his word, if believed and obeyed, will always bring life to our souls. We'll never be in a worse spot. We'll never be in a confusing place. Surrounded by strutting, shape-shifting, word-morphing, definition-changing, sin-exalting culture, God preserves us by his words. We are safest and we are strongest in God's word. And when it seems like every thing and every one around us is saying otherwise, we trust and we proclaim what the king says about a thing. No matter what. Our political opinions, our folksy wisdom, our prideful preferences, our lived experiences, our church traditions are worthless against a satanic enemy. We are safe only when we ask, but what has God said? What has God said about it? What about you, brother and sister? Are you fortifying yourself with God's words? Are you kept and sustained by God's words? Is what God says about a thing what you say about a thing? Because it's coming fast now. It's coming fast now. And we don't have time to be fumbling around for our swords when bullets are whizzing past our heads. Or maybe we have some repenting to do of our own. A couple of areas to think about here. What about uh, repenting from cowardice? 
Like, do you look around and shrug? Do you find yourself doing that more? You read a thing, you watch a thing, and you just, you just shrug. Like, what in the world? Have you fallen? Have I fallen for flattering lips and doublespeak? Have we been duped by smooth? Have we been smooth-talked? Little by little, away from the king, have we woken up to find ourselves somehow having assumed and adopted the world's vocabulary and definitions and terms over against God's words? Do we find ourselves questioning Christ's word about salvation and discipleship more than the world's narrative about righteousness? Do we recognize that what the world calls the right side of history and perhaps love is often hell-bound self-righteousness. Salvation redefined as personal piety. Dear brothers and sisters, staying with the king, it means going to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Hebrews 13. What about some repentance, not only from cowardice, but maybe from our own hypocrisy? Spurgeon charged those in this text, uh, those, uh, in double, those double-hearted men, as having one heart for Sundays and another heart for working days. Does that describe any of us here? If someone only had, if all a person knew of you was the words you said on Sunday, would we be recognizable on Monday? We invent all sorts of ways to redefine sin, to make it less sinful. Are there ways that you and I domesticate sin by explaining it away with our words, with our lips we will prevail, with our tongues? What Jesus calls greed, I call stewardship. What Jesus calls favoritism, we call tradition. What Jesus calls slothfulness, I call it me time. What Jesus calls gossip, I call sharing a prayer request. What Jesus calls self-exaltation, practicing your righteousness before men, I call that a Facebook post. With our tongues we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who will lord over us? Indeed, who will be lord over us? You hang in there for this little selection from a rather uh, obscure uh, reformer, Nikolaus Selniker. Through cross-bearing, the word should increase, grow, be sustained, scattered, and safeguarded. And this we should learn from the psalm. Cherish it, it was a consolation. Cherish it as a consolation. Ascribe it in our heart. Whoever will not rest, let them brawl, rave, rage, howl, and huff. But you remain in the word of God. And do not let yourself be driven away from it. What it validates should be enough for you. Your conscience will be excellent, quiet, and still. For the word of God is pure and perfect and also makes our hearts excellent, pure, and perfect so that they are able to be sure and quiet. May God give us his mercy and blessing so that we would maintain and remain in thought and deed in the word. Or perhaps we can end with how Philip Bliss did in his hymn. You know this hymn. 
beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you are kind to use foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You are kind to sustain a a beleaguered and beat up people often as trophies of your glory. Father, what we might be going through is nothing new to your church, it's nothing new to your people. May the voice of Christ be ever so clear and ever so loud in our hearts these days that we are not tempted to move away from the king and start assuming words and vocabulary that aren't true to your character. We will need your strength. We will need the power of your word to do in us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In the name and power of Christ we pray. Amen.